Well, this summer, my hope is that we can address a specific question. Uh, and the question is, what makes a church a good church? Right? I think we all kind of have this question. What, does, uh, what, what is it that makes a church cross over this, this somewhat seemingly ambiguous threshold from being an unhealthy church and all of a sudden it becomes a healthy church? What, what makes us say that? Why is it that we sometimes say that church over there is not a great church? What would cause us to say that? What, what sort of categories are we using? What's our proof in saying that sort of thing? How can we draw such conclusions? Let me point out that I think these are remarkably important questions to ask. We need to know the difference between a healthy and an unhealthy church. We need to know how to discern whether uh, we are in a church that is healthy, and we need to know how that we might make our church more healthy. Maybe uh, you're about to move to a different area. Maybe you're about to go to school, and you know that once you arrive in that new area, once you arrive at that church or that that new school, you're going to need to find a new church. Uh, Maybe that's something that you're about to uh, come upon this coming semester. And you're going to need to discern what makes a church healthy. How do I know what to look for in a church? Maybe, though, you don't necessarily see yourself leaving this church anytime soon. But I would still say that you need to also understand what a healthy church looks like. And this is why. Because the church is made up of individuals. The church is not a group of pastors who lead the church. The church is made up of individual members. And that means the health of the church is not only dependent on pastors, the health of the church is actually dependent on every single individual member in the congregation. And that means everyone in this room needs to know what it means to be a healthy church. We need to know how we can contribute to the health and vitality of a church. We need to know what to look for as we're seeking to find a new church. Whether we just moved, whether we are off at school, we need to know how to find a good church. So with that said, this summer we are going to spend uh, our time looking at an example of a healthy church. There's no text in the Bible that gives us some sort of like systematic uh, explanation for what a healthy church is. No, instead what we have in the Bible is a list of examples of churches that are healthy, more healthy, or maybe less healthy. And when we come to the the letter uh, of 1 Thessalonians, what we find is one of the very few epistles in the New Testament that is remarkably positive in its evaluation. As Paul is evaluating this church, he he evaluates it in remarkably positive terms. That's not necessarily normal in the New Testament. If you've spent any time reading the New Testament and and read through Paul's epistles, you probably know this. I mean, think of uh, the fact that some New Testament epistles are actually not positive at all. They're actually remarkably negative. Think of First and Second Thess- or First and Second Corinthians. Throughout First and Second Corinthians, it's just one issue after another where Paul is having to correct this church for all of the ways in which they have gone off the rails. Think of the the letter to the Galatians. 
Paul doesn't even greet that church because he is so frustrated with their poor theology. From the very get-go in chapter 1, Paul jumps into the book of Galatians just attacking their poor theology and trying to, to bring a balance and trying to correct this church. That's not the case, though, when we come to 1 Thessalonians. When we come to this, this letter in the New Testament, we find it filled with positive remarks. That's because the church in Thessalonica was an example of a healthy church. We see that actually in chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul says, you became an example to all the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. This entire region, you were an an example of what a healthy church looks like. This doesn't mean the church was perfect, as we'll see in a, a, a couple of weeks. Uh, However, this is a church that by and large we ought to seek to emulate. We ought to seek to learn from this church. That's our plan over the next uh, few months. Our hope is to learn from this church in Thessalonica. So let me begin uh, our night reading the passage that we're going to discuss tonight. We're going to be in chapter 1 and we're going to cover the whole chapter, verses 1 through 10. So chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, uh, verse 1 through 10. Let me, let me read the passage and then we will uh, begin to look at what Paul says here. So verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of Thessalonica, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Here, Paul passes back and forth between a prayer and back to thanksgiving, back to prayer. And you can see here in these verses that Paul is ecstatic over this church, right? He's filled with joy as he's thinking about this congregation in Thessalonica. Let me point out that in chapter one, what we have is Paul's essentially summarizing the entire letter in this prayer. This is a good entry gate into the entire letter, so first, what I want to do is I want to go through this, pastor, or this passage in order to show you what a healthy church looks like. Because we have a, a good list of examples of what a healthy church looks like here in chapter 1. And then second, I want to go through, as we're going through this, we're also going to have kind of an introduction to the letter. 
right? Again, as I said, this is in a sense an entry gate into the entire letter and it's presented in such a succinct way. So I want to also give some background and provide some good insights for us so that we might be better readers of this letter moving forward over the next couple of months. So with that said, here's the basic message of this chapter. Paul is overjoyed by this church and the reason for his joy is the fact that he sees a number of proofs that the Thessalonians have sincere faith in Christ. So Paul is overjoyed and he gives a reason. His reason for his joy is because he sees a number of proofs that the church in Thessalonica has sincere faith in Christ. So he's showing confidence that this church has experienced genuine conversion. He's showing confidence that the members of this church have come into a sincere relationship with Christ. And then Paul goes on to explain in which the, the, the ways in which he has seen this salvation work itself out. So, let's look at verses 1-4 through four to begin because here we see the main thrust of the passage. Let me read again verses 1-4. through four. Paul, Savanus, and Timothy to the church in Thessalonica in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in all of our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So, After Paul gives this general greeting, introducing himself, telling this church grace and peace, Paul jumps right into expressing his deep level of thankfulness for this church. I mean, notice like the the different modifiers here. He is constantly thanking God for this church. He is mentioning them in his prayers always, remembering them before God. Paul had an ongoing relationship with this church. When we read through the book of Acts, we see that throughout the course of Paul's ministry, he was regularly interacting with the members of this church. And that's part of the reason he is so thankful for them. In Acts 17, we read about the time when Paul arrives in Thessalonica for the very first time and preaches the gospel. And as he's preaching the gospel to the uh, city there, he realizes that he's gaining a hearing among the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people in this town, and they are receiving the gospel and they are experiencing immense suffering from the moment they turn to Christ. So in this story, in Acts 17, you have the Jewish leaders in this town growing frustrated with the fact that Paul's ministry is seeing success And so, they begin to persecute those who are adhering to Paul's message. And so you have this situation where uh, one of the church leaders named Jason, he's dragged out of his home, and he's brought before a city council, and then he's forced to pay a fine for believing in Jesus. That's like day one for this church. So Paul is reflecting on his time with this church and thinking through the the sincere joy that he has for these individuals. But his relationship with this church does not end in Acts 17. In fact, when we come to Acts 20, 
Paul's relationship, we see that he's continuing his relationship. In fact, he's doing mission work with a number of the, of the members from the Thessalonican church. So he's, he's with members from their church out on the mission field doing missions with them. So that's, that's the root of his joy here. He knows them well. He has a thorough knowledge, an intimate knowledge of this church. But with that said, let's look at verse 4. Here, in these first four verses, as I mentioned, we see the main point of chapter 1. And the main point is found here in verse 4. After Paul mentioned that he is praying for this church, he provides the reason that he is so joyful and, and, and the reason for his thanksgiving, and the reason he's praying for them. He says, I'm praying for you because he knows that, that they have been chosen by the Father. Paul's prayer and his, and his thanksgiving is rooted in the fact that he knows, he has a confidence that this church, the members of this church have, have experienced sincere and genuine salvation. He says, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. This is essential for us to recognize. The first conclusion that we can draw from this passage about a healthy church is that a church must be filled with actual Christians. Maybe that doesn't sound all that revolutionary to you, right? I might say that and you're like, well, yeah, of course, right? What is a church if it's not made up of Christians. However, I would argue that many churches, even in our community, are strangely content with being filled with people, whether or not those people are actual Christians. There are people who boast about their swaths of people coming to their churches on a Sunday morning, regardless of whether or not those people coming into their building are sincere Christians. I've specifically heard pastors talking about the fact that they are overjoyed by the fact that Muslims and Hindus can come into their churches and leave encouraged. I just have to say that if a non-Christian is able to enter into your midst and leave encouraged apart from the gospel, then there is something poisonous about the message being preached in that church. You know, you'll also hear about churches that are boasting over the numbers of baptisms that they have had in the last few months. And then you come to find out that many of the baptisms that were taking place in that church were people being baptized for the second time. You'll hear about many people in these churches who are being baptized and then they never show up at church again, except maybe on like an Easter or a Mother's Day service. I mean, why in the world should those sorts of things even be celebrated? Why should we as the church celebrate false conversions? There's nothing to celebrate there. In fact, we ought to be in tears over false conversion. The church should not be celebrating when when we are filled with non-Christians who are comfortable. One of the very first questions we must ask about a church in order to determine whether this church is healthy or not is we need to ask whether or not this church is, is, has, a, has a biblical understanding of conversion. Right? Is this church actually filled with Christians or not? Paul's thankfulness for the Thessalonians is rooted in their submission to the gospel, their willingness to adhere to the gospel. The root of his gratitude for this congregation is the fact that they have been chosen 
by God through the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Healthy churches are made up of converted people. Healthy churches are filled with people who have sincerely been converted by the gospel. But this does lead us to ask a question. How can we know whether a church is actually filled with Christians? How how could Paul know that about these people? How does he have such confidence that God had chosen them and, and called them in order to be his people? Well, that leads us to the next few verses. In fact, the rest of the chapter is filled with an explanation of why Paul was so confident in saying that this church had been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Look back at verse 5. Actually, I'll begin reading in verse 4. Here we start to see how Paul is able to determine the genuine conversion of the Thessalonians. Verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because, in other words, we know this because, in verse 5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So Paul's logic here is that we know that you have been chosen by God because when we preached the gospel, you received it. But you did not only receive it in your words, you received it with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So Paul is saying here that you can respond positively to the gospel in two different ways. One of them proves your genuineness and one of them proves nothing. You can either respond to God with power and in the Holy Spirit and with conviction or you can respond positively to God only in word. So let's flesh this out. What does it look like for someone to respond to the gospel positively in word only? What does that actually look like? I think this is typical among people who find themselves to be people pleasers. Maybe a friend preaches uh, the gospel to you and you find yourself interested in the gospel because of the fact that you respect your friend and you want them to think highly of you so you respond well to the gospel. You respond to it in word. But there's no truth, there's no genuineness in that sort of response. Maybe your parents are Christians. You've been raised in a Christian home. It's what we call cultural Christianity. You don't want to disappoint your parents. And so you show up with them at church. You go to church. They want you to come to church. So you go. You come here on a Tuesday night because your parents think it'd be a good idea. You want them to, to think well of you. But at the end of the day, your heart is not there. Your Christianity is only found in the fact that you're there because your family wants you to be there. You're there because your family calls themselves Christians. It's cultural Christianity. That is Christianity in word, but not in power. That's what Christianity looks like uh, when it is found in, in words, but not founded by the Holy Spirit. That's what we call nominal Christianity. It's Christianity by name, not by true identity. I will claim the name of Jesus only with my words. I'm not actually interested in living my life in the way that Jesus is calling me to live my life. True conversion, though, it comes with power. It comes with the Holy Spirit. It comes with true, sincere conviction. So what does that look like? 
What does this side of things look like? The positive side. The the response to the gospel that actually is accompanied by sincerity, by power, by the Holy Spirit. Well, let's keep reading. Paul goes on to explain what he means by saying that the word of God came in power with the Holy Spirit and with much conviction among the Thessalonians. Look at verses 5 and 6. So he says in verse 5, I'll just read the whole verse there. He says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. This is, this is important. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Here Paul's main point is that this church proved that their conversion was genuine because they became imitators of the Lord and of the Apostle. The Apostle Paul. In verse 5 he says, You know what kind of men we proved to be. And then he says that they became imitators of us. So what's he saying here when he says, You know what kind of men we proved to be. You know what kind of men we were. Like what, what is he getting at? I think here we need to go back to the history of the church. We need to go back to Paul's history with this congregation. Remember, this congregation knew Paul well. And we need to think about the fact that uh, when Paul showed up in Thessalonica, he was beaten up. Paul had just had a rough experience doing mission work throughout uh, the, the region of Asia. He had recently been stoned to the point where the people stoning him thought he was dead. Then he goes to the city of Philippi, and when he arrives in Philippi, he's beaten, and then he's thrown in prison. And the very next place he comes is Thessalonica. And so he shows up to preach the gospel to this church, covered in bruises, as we would suspect at least, right? His face could be deformed at this point after being stoned in the face. right? He's, he, he probably doesn't look all that pretty at this point. And so they know what kind of men... Paul and his companions proved to be. And he says, you became imitators of us. You also became imitators of the Lord. Remember, Jesus did not live a life of peace and tranquility. He lived a life of suffering. In fact, he suffered to the point of death through persecution. And so when it says that the Thessalonians imitated Paul and they imitated Jesus, Paul goes on to say, here's here's what I mean. You received the word with joy even through the midst of suffering. You received the word with gladness even though you were suffering as you were receiving the word. This is what it looks like to receive the word of God with power and with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You, su- you accept the word of God, even if it means you need to suffer, just like Paul, just like Jesus. It's looking at, at, at suffering, looking at the face of suffering and saying, I still want Jesus, even though I know that's what, that's what I have in front of me. That's what receiving the word looks like when it comes in truth, in sincerity, in genuineness, in the power of the Holy Spirit. You do not have people accepting Jesus in word only. You don't have people following Jesus in a nominal sense if they know that following Jesus is going to result in suffering. 
John Piper points this out well when he says that the greatest cure for nominal Christianity is suffering. You do not have nominal Christians living in Iran. You do not have Christians who are Christians in word alone living in China. You do not have cultural Christianity in North, North Korea suffering under brutal dictatorship. You do not have those things because there's no benefit to Christianity for a nominal Christian in a, 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 a society like that. No one will take the name of Jesus on their lips in word alone if their life is on the line. Paul knew that the Thessalonians had sincere faith because they were calling on the name of Jesus even though they had suffering on the path directly in front of them. So we need to recognize that this is something that we all experience as well. It may not be suffering that comes the point of death, but we have something very similar in our society. Think about the the university campuses that we find ourselves on, right? Think of the college campus you find yourself on where Christians are considered to be backwards, where Christians are considered to be bigots. The average university student in California is going to think that the thought of biblical Christianity is a mockery. There are not many cultural benefits to claiming Christianity on a secular campus that looks down upon Christians. And so I would encourage you, if you find a church filled with individuals willing to preach the gospel with boldness in the midst of a culture like that, you've probably found a church filled with genuine Christians and you might want to partner yourself with them because they're obviously doing something right. They're willing to take cultural demise for the sake of Christ. They're willing to take on cultural uh, 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 shunning for the sake of Jesus. So there are a number of important implications for us to to come, come away with here. You see, unhealthy churches will avoid persecution at all costs. They don't want persecution because they're not filled with, with genuine Christians who are seeking Christ despite what the culture says. So here's what I mean. Here's what a, a, an unhealthy church may look like in relation to this topic here. This is a church that attempts to avoid any topic that will prove controversial. Right? You'll have churches that want to avoid any passage in Scripture that will cause people to ask a difficult or a controversial question. Some churches will go even further by taking uh, the viewpoints on themselves even though those viewpoints may contradict scriptures. Some churches will go even a step further, where they will not only take the viewpoints of the culture, but they will argue for the culture's viewpoints. Usually this is a slow decline. So let me give you an, a, like an explicit example of what this might look like. Imagine you're in a church. At first, this church is unwilling to clearly articulate the fact that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Maybe they kind of shy away from that because it's, it's culturally touchy. People don't like that idea that Jesus is exclusive. He's the only way to God. And so you'll have people kind of avoiding any passages that speak to that because they're trying to avoid backlash. Then the church maybe decides to go a step further. 
And maybe they quietly begin to argue that, well, you know, many religions can actually lead to God. But they kind of do it in a half-hearted way because they still recognize, you know, this is kind of controversial. We don't want to go against our cultural or, or traditional Christianity, but we don't want to go against the culture. But then finally, there's also like this type of church where they actually defend the position that all religions lead to God and they will be adamant about this in order to be culturally inclusive. They don't want to uh, uh, exclude anyone. They don't want to, to allow anyone uh, to feel as though they're on the outside. So what's at the heart of this decline? Is it, def- is it, the, 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 is it not the fear of offending people? Like, is it not the fear that they're going to receive backlash from the culture? They're unwilling to experience any sort of suffering, even if that suffering is mild and it's only in arguments from the culture. They're, they're not willing to stand against what the world says and say, we disagree with what the world is arguing for. A healthy church, however, is willing to experience cultural backlash associated with controversial opinions. A healthy church is willing to receive the backlash even when they say that that Jesus is the only way to God because they know that's what Scripture clearly teaches. They're not going to allow the cultural backlashes to, to make them retreat away from the truth of the Bible. A healthy church is willing to draw the line in the sand because they know what the Bible says. If you want to know whether a church is healthy or not, one way to determine it is to discern whether or not that church is willing to face persecution. Are they willing to hold fast to the scriptures regardless of what the culture says? Or do they find themselves caving constantly to the pressure that's put on them by the culture? Anytime that they preach a controversial message. This is why the Thessalonians are a model for us. They were not deterred from preaching the gospel just because the, go- the gospel was controversial in their city. They were not deterred from preaching the gospel just because the gospel was controversial. The Thessalonians are a model for us because they were willing to suffer the loss of all things for the gospel of Jesus. So before we p- move on, let me, let me just point out that this is a major theme in the book of Thessalonians. And it actually, I think, goes to prove that healthy churches are typically marked by some sort of suffering. They're typically marked by some sort of backlash from the culture. That's why we're going to see this is such a massive theme. Healthy churches, and when we read in the book of Revelation at our summer uh, retreat, we also see there the healthy churches in, in Revelation two and three, uh, or three and four, they, they also are marked by severe suffering. Suffering produces genuine Christianity. So we'll look there later, but for now, let's move on to verse seven, uh, seven through 10. Now, the, the final reason that Paul can know that the church of Thessalonica uh, is is experiencing genuine salvation is the fact that they became a model of faith to the other churches throughout the world. They were an example of what faith looks like. So look at verse 7. And you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. 
For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul's point here is that the genuineness of the the Thessalonian salvation is proven by their exemplary faith. So, they have been an example of faith in a number of ways here. You can see there's, there's a number of different ways in which they function as an example of what biblical faith looks like and what genuine faith looks like. In verse 8, first off, we see that they are an example of faith because they are remarkably bold in their evangelism. So this is the first marker of their exemplary faith. It's their exemplary evangelism. Look at what Paul says. He mentions here that they have been so keen on sharing the gospel that everyone in the entire region has heard the message of Jesus because of this church. Like That's a pretty profound statement. Like Paul says, we can't go anywhere like in the proximity of your church and preach the gospel without people saying, yeah, yeah, I've already heard that from those guys over there in Thessalonica. Like that's an amazing statement. Think about that for a moment. Look at what verse 8 says. Let me just read this. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we can't say anything. We can't tell anyone the gospel who has not heard it yet if they're in your proximity because you've already done it. A healthy church is unashamed in their preaching of the gospel. This is a clear mark of a healthy church. It's a a willingness to declare Jesus Christ to a watching world regardless of whether or not that message is received from those who are looking at them. Whether they receive the gospel or they reject it, this church is saying, we will keep on declaring it. Whether or not they they face receptivity or hostility, this church is saying, we are going to continue to proclaim the gospel. Whether or not they, 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 they uh, come across people who are accepting the gospel or not, they continue to declare the gospel. That is a mark of a healthy church. And in this way, we too can learn from the Thessalonians. I think one clear uh, thing that we, that we all need to think about here is when we think of church growth, when we think of this ministry here growing, what comes to mind? What, what are you thinking about when you think of this ministry growing or our church growing? I think typically what we tend to think of is people just coming. Doesn't matter who. Uh, and typically what we tend to think is like, hey, I see a, a person my age on a Sunday that I don't see on a Tuesday. I need to invite them. This ministry is now growing because people are coming. I think there's some truth to that, right? That, that's a good thing. Uh, people are coming who, who are Christians, who ought to come here as Christians. Uh, but this can come, become a problem, right? Think of it in the church world. If a church's growth only comes from Christians moving from one church to another, that's not genuine growth in the universal church. That's just people moving around from one congregation to another. 
what we need to be looking for, first and foremost, is we need to look for conversion, right? That's the type of growth that we want to be taking place in the church. We want people to come to Christ and then be added to our numbers that way. Not just come into our midst from the church down the street. That's not genuine gospel growth. I think it can be helpful at times if they're leaving an unhealthy church and coming to a more healthy church, but genuinely or generally speaking, that's not the type of growth that we actually are looking for. We're looking for people who did not know Christ to come to know Christ and then come into our midst. And let me, let me push on this a little bit. I've had people come to me and say, hey, your messages aren't, aren't, uh, they aren't attractive to non-Christians when I bring them here. I don't really care because I don't view it as my responsibility to, to convert the people you like bring here who aren't Christians, right? Your job is to preach the gospel to those people, right? It's not my sole responsibility to preach the gospel to non-Christians who come here. I think this ministry is actually more importantly for Christians to be equipped to then go into the world and preach the gospel, right? That's what I hope you might be able to go and do is sit next to your classmates, sit next to your coworkers and declare the gospel with accuracy. Don't just bring non-Christians here and don't share the gospel with them. I mean, that's a good thing to do, I guess, but but don't think that that's sharing the gospel, just inviting someone to church. It's good, but that's not the same thing as preaching the gospel to someone. So keep that in mind. Okay, so the next uh, point of, uh, uh, of Paul here is, is that this church in Thessalonica has exemplary faith in the way that they demonstrate biblical repentance. This is important. Look at verse 9. For they themselves reported concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So what's Paul saying here? Paul is pointing out that the Thessalonians Thessalonians are an example in the way uh, of of the way that they um, accepted the apostles' message. Right? The way that they received Paul's message, it, it was an exemplary form of reception. They received the message from the apostles and they turned from their idols to serve the living God. This is what it looks like to truly repent from your sin and to turn to serve God. A healthy church is marked by true repentance. Repentance is the act of turning away from your sin to God. It's the act of turning away from your idols to God. That's true repentance. And this is important for us to recognize because so many churches have an inappropriate or an inaccurate view of what repentance is. True repentance says, I see my sin and I need forgiveness from my sin. I want nothing to do with my old lifestyle. I want Jesus. That's what genuine repentance looks like. And yet when a church fails to preach repentance accurately, what they end up doing is they end up fostering an unhealthy church. When you aren't telling people to repent from their sin in an accurate way, what you're actually doing is you're allowing non-Christians to sit in your midst and you're not telling them what it looks like to turn away from their sin. This is why Paul places this emphasis on the fact that the Thessalonians, they knew how to repent. They were turning from their, their idols to God. 
And for that reason, they are an example for us to emulate. We are to follow their example of repentance. When you are calling people to accept Jesus, there is an aspect of repentance that needs to be incorporated into that message. You're calling that person to, to not only receive Jesus, you're calling them to turn away from their sin to Jesus. I think in, in uh, every culture, this is a temptation to just accept Jesus and to continue to live my current lifestyle. And depending on the culture, the way that you do that, it will look differently. So here's what I mean. Here, you maybe you're, you're, you're preaching the gospel to someone. This person likes to party. They, they like to live a life of like sinfulness. Uh, they're like, sure, I like the idea of Jesus. I'll accept Jesus, but I'm going to keep living my life the way I'm living my life. I'm not really going to change anything. Right? There's no genuine repentance. They just kind of added Jesus to the way they were living their life before. Well, uh, I think this can look a little bit different in different cultures. When I was in China a couple summers ago, we were talking to a guy uh, in uh, this, this town that was filled with Buddhists. It was a famous uh, city with a, a very large Buddhist monastery, and it had all sorts of people coming to visit this city. And we were talking to this, this guy there who was Chinese. He was, he was Tibetan. Who, he was part of this Buddhist uh, city, and he, he, he said he was Buddhist. Um, and when we were preaching the gospel to this guy, he was very interested. And yet what he kept doing, every 20 minutes or so, he essentially was telling us what he wanted to do was accept his Buddhism, but just add Jesus. And, and then he would we'd explain, no, that's not really how it works. And we'd go for like 20 minutes. It seemed like he was tracking. About 20 minutes later, he's like, so the way I understand it is I essentially, his essential message was, I want to add Jesus to my Buddhism. And this happened about three times, right, over the course of like an hour and a half. And so for him, he had a very hard time with true biblical repentance. I want to turn from my idols to Jesus. Just in America, where we don't necessarily worship idols, it just looks a little bit different. We don't say, I'm going to keep worshiping my idols I just want to add Jesus to my list of idols. Instead, we say, I'm going to keep living my life the way I live. I just want to add Jesus to it. I'm not going to actually turn from my my way of living. I'm just going to add Jesus because it seems like a good idea. That's not true biblical repentance. We need to make sure people understand the essence of the gospel. Turn away from your previous lifestyle to Christ. Okay, so the final way in which this church is a great example for us to follow is the fact that they rightfully anticipate the second coming. Look at verse 10. I'll read verse 9 again because it kind of leads into verse 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is another theme that is going to come up over and over again throughout the book of First Thessalonians. In fact, chapters 4 and 5 deal explicitly with the second coming of Christ. But interspersed throughout this letter is this constant reminder that the Thessalonians are anticipating the second coming of Christ and they're anticipating him uh, coming again with a sense of urgency. I don't, I don't always sense that in my own heart. 
right? This urgency for Christ to come again. I personally don't always sense that going on in myself. And yet what, I, what I'm picking up from 1 Thessalonians is that a healthy church has a, has a full-on, thorough understanding that Jesus is coming back and I need to live my life, I need to order my life around that reality. A healthy church is one that anticipates the second coming of Jesus. So what is the second coming? We'll discuss this more uh, in more detail uh, in weeks to come, but the Christian message is that Jesus died on a cross for sin, and then he rose from the grave three days later to conquer sin and death, and then after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to the heavens after 40 days. But during those 40 days, Jesus told his disciples that one day he would return to earth in order to establish his everlasting kingdom and to judge sin once and for all. That's the second coming, when Christ comes back to establish his kingdom and to judge sin. Paul's point is that the Thessalonians regularly were anticipating Christ's second coming, and it was affecting the way that they lived out their daily lives. Their everyday actions were affected by their view of Christ's second coming. So think about this for a moment with me. If you are living your life in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return in order to establish his eternal kingdom, that will change the way that you live. If you have this perspective, it's going to help you live your life with a greater sense of purpose it's, a, it's going to help you live your life with a greater sense of, of urgency. It's going to help you to recognize that I have something to live for that, that is far greater than any experience that I'm going to participate in within this life. Right? It's going to be reminding you on a regular basis that everything I experience here is temporary. What is to come is eternal. When we come to grips with Jesus' second coming, we are constantly reminded that every person that we, interact, that we interact with on a daily basis has an eternal soul, and they only have a limited amount of time to turn to Christ. When you are living in light of the second coming, it is going to help you to live your life with urgency as you anticipate the coming of God's kingdom. Life is not fun and games. That's, that's not what life is about. Life is not about experiencing as many things as possible before you settle down with your career, with your wife, and have children. Life is not about living on a six-figure salary in a beautiful neighborhood. Life is not about retirement or vacation. But if you're not living for the second coming, those things make no sense to you. If you're not living for the fact that Christ is coming to establish an eternal kingdom, the fact that vacation is not what I live for, that doesn't make much sense. You know, when you are living your life in in light of the reality that Jesus will come again, it brings about a seriousness to life. And healthy church recognizes this. This sort of mentality is going to to cause a church to order itself around God's global plan for missions. This sort of mentality is going to cause a church to, to organize itself so that it might be in the act of planting churches 
and seeing God's kingdom grow here on earth now. When we have this sort of mentality, it's going to spur on evangelism. Evangelism like the Thessalonians who were able to preach the gospel with such tenacity that people in the entire region heard it. If we live with this sort of perspective, it is going to prompt every member in the church to live every day purposefully for the sake of the Great Commission. When we get a hold of this fact, it's going to help us spend our money in a way that, that is living in light of the great, the great uh, kingdom that is to come. Right? This sort of mindset is what motivated the Thessalonians. That's why we can learn from them. Notice all the ways in which this church is a great model for us to emulate. Just, just what we found here in one chapter. Let me just highlight this. Like First, we see that this is a healthy church because it is filled with true converts. We see that this is a healthy church because they, they are uh, following the example of the apostles and of Jesus, suffering for the gospel. We see that this is a healthy church because they, they are constantly evangelizing. They know what true repentance is. They are living their lives in anticipation for the second coming of Christ. I mean, this is what a healthy church looks like. So I hope that over the course of the next few months, we will be able to learn all the more from this church and hopefully it's going to be able to shape our ministry here and shape our church so that we might become a more healthy church. And hopefully it helps you as you're going away from here, going off to school and looking for churches. Hopefully this will help you to discern what church you ought to join. So I hope that this will prove helpful in the weeks to come. But for now, let's pray, let's close our time, let's close uh, this time with some singing.